0: Whitney and I met through our husbands who were childhood friends, but quickly bonded in several aspects. We realized that we had many commonalities, both boy moms, both loved wine, and both intrigued
1: by true crime. Early on in our friendship, we also learned that our histories allowed us to have differing opinions that creates a healthy conversation. Not only do we love listening to the cases that baffle our minds, we are advocates for those that crimes were committed against. Victims
2: do not get a chance to tell their story, but we can. We bring awareness and fight for
0: justice for those that cannot fight themselves.
1: Melissa and I spend hours weekly going through newspaper articles, past interviews, news reports, and anything we can bring to listeners for a complete journey. Our mission is to create awareness in the only way we know how. We say something because we will be there. No matter where. No matter
2: who.
0: Cults, Crimes, and Cabernet is available wherever you get your podcasts. Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours.
2: Right
1: now, there is no trace.
2: Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do.
1: This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone.
2: The village of Armada is located in northern Macomb County in Michigan, just outside Detroit. The village is a bedroom community with an 1850s-style downtown area. Just over 200 years ago, this brushy, swampy area was surveyed by federal surveyors as part of the exploration of America's Northwest Territory. This area saw an influx of settlers during Michigan Fever and saw a period of rapid immigrant growth in 1832 through 1836. Armada was once a bustling community with an opera house, a theater, a lumberyard, a mill, five doctors, multiple blacksmiths, and seven grocery stores. There were also multiple churches established, beginning with a Methodist church. Catholicism has a presence in the area as well, with St. Mary's Mystical Rose Catholic Church, which underwent construction in 1947. April Millsap and her family were members of St. Mary's Mystical Rose Catholic Church. April was confirmed in St. Mary's on a spring Sunday in 2014. Barely three months later, the 14-year-old's funeral was held in the same place. Come with me to the village of Armada in the summer of 2014, when April's hopes for the future were brutally and violently ended. April Millsap was looking forward to starting her freshman year of high school in the fall of 2014. She was a good student who loved animals and school, and she loved learning German. Like many teenage girls, April loved her friends, she loved fashion, and her dog Penny. On the evening of July 24th, she changed outfits three times before taking her dog out for a walk. April left the house around five thirty. She was carrying a backpack, a bottle of water, and her cell phone. April was usually only gone for about an hour when she walked one of the two family dogs. It was normal for her to walk along the nearby Macomb Orchard Trail, which was frequented by other walkers or bike riders. When April had not returned home by eight or eight thirty, her mother became concerned. She began texting and calling April. And when she did not receive a reply, Jennifer Millsap sent a text to April's boyfriend, Austin, who said he had not seen April that day. He later revealed that he had received an odd text from April that said, quote, I think I almost just got kidnapped. O-M-F-G. Jennifer got in her car and drove around for about 10 minutes looking for her daughter. When she returned home, Austin and his friend Alex were there. The three split up looking for April, Alex and Jennifer in their respective cars, and Austin on April's bike. He went down the trail looking for his girlfriend. Jennifer stopped at the car wash a block or so away from her home when she received a call from Austin telling her to meet him at the trail. When she arrived, Austin was talking to a police officer and said animal control was there. Jennifer spoke with the officer and explained she was looking for her daughter. Jennifer was on scene for about 20 minutes when they asked her to go to the police station. She rode to the police station in the back of a cruiser and then waited 30 minutes for someone to talk to her. Several officers came in and out and would ask her questions about when April left to walk the dog. This was not a quick questioning. Jennifer was at the police station for 10 hours before they took her home about 8.30 the next morning. They did not provide her with any specific information other than that they had found a body. It was about 2 p.m. on July 25th when Jennifer's worst fears were realized. An FBI agent came to the home and asked Jennifer to identify April from a photograph. Listeners, this is any parent's worst nightmare. Now, it had been 40 years since there'd been a murder in Armada, and thankfully the department knew they needed the help and support of a more experienced force asking for assistance from both the FBI and the Michigan State Police. At the end of this episode, we'll be hearing from one of the state troopers who worked the investigation, so be sure to stay tuned after the story to hear what he has to say. After a vicious attack that left April Millsap dead, her devoted pup Penny stayed with April, venturing out onto the trail when she sensed other people. Penny went from the trail back to the brush, and the joggers followed her, discovering April's body, about 15 or 20 feet off the trail in a drainage ditch. A tip led law enforcement to start searching for a small motorcycle that had been seen in the area. Motor vehicles, including motorcycles, are not allowed on the trail, so someone on a motorbike stood out to investigators. The rider had been seen talking to a girl matching April's description. Michigan State Police created a sketch of a tall white man seen in the area around the time of April's disappearance, and that sketch was released to the public on Sunday, July 27th. But on Saturday night, a vigil was held for April. Around 300 people participated in the vigil, which was held outside St. Mary Mystical Rose Church. On July 30th, a search warrant was conducted at a home on Marquette Road in Wales Township. At the time, two men were arrested, James Bernard Van Callis, age 66, and his son, James Donald Van Callis, age 32. The charges stemmed from an improper marijuana grow operation and were not related to April's murder. They were arraigned two days later and held on $75,000 bond each. The elder Van Callis, he was a registered sex offender, having been convicted in 1995 of second-degree criminal sexual conduct involving a victim younger than 13, and fourth-degree criminal sexual conduct with a victim aged 13 to 16. Now, witnesses who had seen April on the trail on the night of her murder phoned the police after they saw the younger Van Callis on the news. At least two people positively identified James Donald Van Callis as the man they saw, talking to April on the trail. One woman said she encountered April, who gave her a small, tense smile as she walked away from a man matching Van Callis' description. The witness said the man looked angry as he walked after the teenager. So who was James Donald Van Callis? He had grown up in Armada and, in 2014, still had family and friends in the area. At the time of April's murder, he had a longtime girlfriend, Crystal who later offered him an alibi, which she recanted. Crystal said Van Callis was both controlling and abusive. And James Van Callis had at least one brother. We know this because he requested this brother delete texts from the night of the murder. A search of the computer in the Van Callis home revealed disturbing internet searches, including how to have sex with a young girl and how to attract younger women. Van Callis had previously been charged with failure to pay child support and breaking and entering a building with intent. Van Callis also had numerous charges stemming back decades, including shoplifting and malicious destruction of property. He also had at least one child and, at the time of the murder, was living with his mother and stepfather, his girlfriend, their child, and his girlfriend's child from a previous relationship. The elder Van Callis, Jim, Also lived in the home, and this we'll get into in a little more detail when we have the interview later this episode. Crystal said that in 2014 she did not have a cell phone because James would not allow her to have one, nor was she allowed to use his computer very often. She communicated with her few friends via Facebook and had lost many friends because her friends did not like her partner James, and honestly, The younger James Van Kellis sounds like a controlling jerk. As the murder investigation picked up steam, Jennifer was forced to plan a funeral for her beautiful daughter. April was laid to rest on Friday, August 1st. Pink ribbons were tied to poles and trees at the church and all around the community for miles. Pink was April's favorite color. Many of the nearly 200 mourners wore pink to her funeral, which was conducted by three officiants. While her service took place just one mile away from the church, members of the Michigan State Police dive team were searching a small pond for evidence. On August eighteenth, 2014, another search warrant was executed. This warrant was sealed, so the location of the search warrant was not revealed to the press. However, it appears the warrant was again related to the Van Callis household. Several firefighters around Macomb and St. Clair counties were called to a location near Goodles County Park, presumably to search for evidence. The next day, police formally announced that James D. Van Callis, that's the younger Van Callis, was a person of interest in April's murder. His attorney, Dean Ancuni, said that the father and son were cooperating with the investigation from the start and they felt harassed. He claimed that the police ransacked the home twice in two and a half weeks and questioned why James D. Van Callis, that's the younger Van Callis, had not been charged with a crime. He described him as wonderful and said he was not aware of a connection between Van Callis and April Millsap. He also alluded that the drug charges were trumped up since father and son had valid medical marijuana cards. In contrast to what the attorney said about the cooperation, a police spokesperson said James D. Van Callis had not spoken with police and that he did not wish to speak with police. That week, the week of July 24th, someone from the Van Callis home contacted Jeff's rubbish disposal, saying extra trash needed to be picked up due to a basement flood. The Van Callises had been customers of Jeff's since 2010, and typically only had trash picked up once a week. And I would love to know what they took out of the Van Callis home that day. In September, on the 14th, the Romeo to Richmond half-marathon and 5K race, a popular annual event, took place. In 2014, the race honored April. A picnic table was set up near the trail, and pink bandanas were given to runners. A few days after the marathon, investigators searched the trail again, as well as a nearby swimming pool, but nothing was found in connection to April's murder, although it was leaked to the press that the investigation centered around a shoe print found on April's upper torso. Now, according to her death certificate, April's cause of death was blunt force head trauma and asphyxiation due to neck compression. On October 9, 2014, James D. Van Callis was formally charged with first-degree, premeditated murder, and felony murder. Both of these carry mandatory life sentences. He was also charged with assault with intent to commit sexual penetration. A month later, his attorney asked the judge to appoint an attorney to represent Van Callis and withdrew from the case. Brenda Pupy, James Van Callis' mother, said defense attorneys were expensive. Listeners, we've talked about cell phone evidence in previous episodes, and like many forms of forensic evidence and testimony, it can be controversial. The best-known case of cell phone evidence being used is the case of Adnan Syed, the subject around the podcast Serial. Now, the FBI has a specially trained team that focuses exclusively on cell phone evidence and cell phone usage reconstruction. To become a member of FBI's computer analysis response team, which is known as CART, you have to receive training and certifications which can take years to achieve. The case around James Van Callis, and again this is the younger Van Callis, would center mostly on cell phone evidence as well as data from April's Fitbit. There was very little physical evidence, although, based on statements from Van Callis' brother and girlfriend, along with a trash pickup, Investigators believed that Van Callis had disposed of most of the evidence linking him to April. His girlfriend said on the night of the murder she read about April's death on Facebook and showed the story to James, who took her tablet and stared at it for a while. Later that night, after they'd gone to sleep, Crystal said she woke up to find him cleaning his Nike Air Jordan shoes with hand sanitizer. Crystal asked him what he was doing, and he said he was cleaning oil off of his shoes. Crystal went back to bed, and she was annoyed by being woken up. James returned to bed later and, according to her, was very lovey-dovey. He told her he had messed up and he needed her to stand by his side. The next day, he brought her some laundry. He asked her to wash his Carhartt hoodie, a pair of camo pants, and a T-shirt. Crystal said that when she was washing the hoodie, she found human hair as well as grass or straw in the pocket. She set this wad of what she assumed was trash on the bathroom sink and did not mention it to James. James then told Crystal and his father to tell police that he was wearing K-Swiss brand athletic shoes on the night of the 24th. Shortly after, Crystal noticed a shoebox that was kept on top of the refrigerator was missing. This was a K-Swiss shoebox that Crystal kept paperwork in. She never did ask James about the shoebox, After July 27th, Crystal said she never saw that hoodie again, the one that she'd washed. She also noted that James had parked his motorcycle toward the front of his Ford Explorer, which was unusual, as he usually parked it by the door. Crystal would never be charged or even suspected of being involved in April's murder, but it did take multiple interviews with investigators for her to come clean about what she knew. One reason she was so evasive when questioned is that she feared not only James, but his family. She left the Van Callis home on July 29th to celebrate her birthday at her mother's house. She was interviewed there by officers, and while there, she learned that James had been arrested. She moved out of the Van Callis home after this, taking her children with her. Now, listeners, the death of April Millsap was horrific. The injuries and pain that April sustained were described as gruesome by the defense attorney, and even the judge, Mary Jarnowski, agreed that two photographs of April's injuries were disturbing. Judge Jarnowski prefaced this by saying she had a better handle for gruesome because she'd grown up in a funeral home. Therefore, she couldn't determine if the images would be too much for the jury. In the end, even the two photographs identified by the judge were allowed to remain part of the record. But she advised the state's attorney to strongly caution the jury that the photographs were horrific. Even the descriptions of the photographs are disturbing. April had been stomped on. There were shoe prints left on her body. Blood oozed out of her nose, mouth, and even her eyes. When the deputy assistant medical examiner, Dr. Pietrangelo, arrived on the scene around 1 in the morning on July 25th, She saw April's body lying on her back in some vegetation. April's hair had fallen over the left side of her face, and her head was turned toward the right. April had abrasions on her face above her eyebrows. There was a herringbone pattern on her face which was consistent with the pattern of a Nike Air Jordan. Not only had April's torso and chest been stomped, but her face had as well. Her camisole and sweater had been pulled down, exposing her breasts. Her bra had been torn between the cups, and her underwear was around her ankles. Her light blue denim shorts were pulled down around her left ankle, leaving her exposed. Behind April's ears were small, orangish spots, which looked almost like clumps of sawdust. The assistant medical examiner stated those were fly eggs, which usually begin to form between 30 minutes to an hour after a person dies. In all, there were 23 blunt impact injuries to April's face and head, and 11 to her neck. Her attacker was in a rage and took it out on young April. The coroner counted an additional 14 injuries to her torso and extremities. Several of the injuries to her face matched James Van Callis' motorcycle helmet. Prosecutors theorized that Van Callis made advances toward April on the trail, and she rebuffed him. Angry, he parked the motorcycle, taking his helmet with him, and approached April from behind, striking her on the left side of the head and face with his helmet, then dragging her into the brush. They believe he intended to rape her, but heard people on the trail and ran off. We mentioned earlier the importance of cell phone evidence to the resolution of this case. The defense requested $15,000 to hire a cell phone expert witness, Michael O'Kelly. If this name sounds familiar, it's because he was involved in the Netflix series Making a Murderer. This expert witness would end up being controversial in the April Millsap case as well. During the trial, Van Callis' defense attorney, Azhar Sheikh, told Judge Sharnowski that he planned on having Michael O'Kelly sit next to him and assist with cross examination of an FBI agent about some GPS technology and stuff. He said he'd done this in the past, had the expert sit next to him and assist with cross-examination of a technical witness. The state's attorney, Bill Cataldo, argued that Michael O'Kelly had been provided with preliminary exam transcripts and reports, but was listed as a witness. Under a court order, a witness cannot stay in the courtroom and testify. Judge Sharnofsky said she couldn't allow it because O'Kelly was a witness. Defense counsel said he would just like for Mr. O'Kelly to sit in the courtroom and not testify, but act as a technical expert. Although the state's attorney said he had no objection, the judge said she had a problem with it. Why was she paying the expert witness $15,000 if he wouldn't be taking the stand? The defense attorney argued, but the judge said how she got a bill for $15,000 for someone sitting in the courtroom for four days, she had no idea. Sharnowsky finally said she would not pay the bill for $15,000. In the end, the witness billed the state of Michigan for almost $40,000, but Judge Sharnowsky only allowed him to be paid $10,000. And just a side note, April's phone was not located with her body. It was found later by tracking dogs, and we'll get into that in the second part of the episode. When her phone was recovered, forensic examination showed that it and her Fitbit passed a surveillance camera at the same time a motorcycle was captured on video. Records indicated that April's phone was going 22 miles an hour versus the previous 3.8 miles an hour a few minutes before. Additionally, surveillance footage captured an image of James Van Callis with April's phone. James Van Callis did not testify during the three-week trial and on Friday, February 5th, the jury began deliberations. After seven hours of deliberating on Friday and Monday, the jury reached a verdict. The foreman looked at James Van Callis as he stated guilty on all four counts. And the courtroom erupted into tears, hugs, and clapping. In 2016, James Van Callis was sentenced to life in prison on the counts of first-degree and felony murder. On the charges of kidnapping, he was sentenced to 225 to 480 months. On the charge of assault with intent to commit sexual penetration, he was sentenced to 80 to 120 months. Jennifer Millsap spoke to James Van Callis at his sentencing hearing. She questioned his motives for brutally killing her daughter and said she hoped his fellow inmates heard about how brutal he was toward a child. She spoke emotionally of her daughter, saying, You stole my beautiful daughter's life, and you stole the rest of mine. April was a beautiful, kind, giving, and loving young lady. She was beautiful, both on the inside as well as the outside. You stole her future and all that she had to give, from her and from the rest of the world. She loved animals, nature. She wrote poems and short stories as a way to enhance her creativity. When she believed in something, she'd stand up for that issue or person. I was very proud of her. She was my world, and I loved her, and I will miss her greatly. Jennifer Millsap said many things in court, but these lines highlight the grief and pain she was feeling. Van Callis spoke at his sentencing hearing, essentially stating that he did not receive a fair trial, and there was no evidence to prosecute him. He said, This is a sad chain of events that I'm somehow wrapped up in. Van Callis appealed his sentence in 2018, and the sentence was affirmed. He appealed to the state Supreme Court, who denied his appeal for a final time. In 2015, over the course of 36 hours, the April Millsap Memorial Garden was created. The garden was started on Friday, June 12th at 9 a.m. It resumed the next morning at 9 a.m. and completed at 9 p.m. Area nurseries donated dozens of shrubs, flowers, and plants, and numerous volunteers showed up to do the work. The garden was designed to show April's personality and her love of butterflies. At the dedication, Jennifer Millsap and April's boyfriend, Austin, released butterflies. And listeners, there's a bell in the garden to ring in remembrance of April. If you happen to stop by the garden, ring the bell. Jennifer lives close by, and she'll hear it. She likes to know that people are thinking of April. To conclude this much requested case, I have an interview with one of the investigators. Michigan State Police Sergeant Ray Peckman worked this case and uncovered some of the key evidence which led to the Van Callis home.
0: All right, so let's talk about April Millsap's case and how you got involved.
1: Uh, April Millsap's case. So at the time I was a detective trooper assigned to our uh, detective bureau and I was working with a group in uh, a small town of Inkster investigating homicides and attempted homicides. I received a call on the evening of uh, April Millsap's murder and told what had occurred and asked to be in our MEDA the next morning, first thing.
0: Real quick, you were working in Inkster, which is Metro South, and they called you all the way up to our MEDA to work on this case.
1: Yes, they were putting a call out to several detectives around the area throughout our, what we call, second district, which is uh, the Metro Detroit area, as well as the third district would be just north of, the Armada border, um, and they they were pulling in detectives from all over. They felt they were going to, you know, need a lot of resources at least to start and see where we were going to go with it. Okay. I arrived uh, the next morning at 7 a.m. in Armada. It was uh, a little chaotic, and I think that was due to the amount of people arriving. Uh, Unclear yet. Uh, what path everybody was going to be taking to, uh, you know, help investigate the crime. Armada was a very, is a very small police department. So room became an issue and there was already some talks about uh, moving and setting up a command center somewhere larger that could hold the amount of people, uh, the resources we were going to be using in the case. I was um, at the time they had uh, April Millsap's boyfriend and his friend were there. I'm not clear if they had been there all night. They were being interviewed. So I got pulled into an interview with uh, the boyfriend's um, friend, and that was basically his alibi for the day of the murder. Um, They had been doing different things and running around at different locations. So I sat in on that interview, and then we began to discuss different aspects as I caught up on what the information was in the case. We talked about moving our location, and that happened rather quickly, and we set up a command center at a school in Armada. It was a, I want to say it used to be a gymnasium, um, and that's where we we set up home uh, for this case.
0: So when you set up in this new location, approximately how many um, investigators were there, and from which agencies?
1: I could not even guess how many investigators we had. I would have to say, though it was over forty people. Wow. There were detectives called in from all over. we have um, we also have detectives. Throughout the state, that are assigned to other task forces. So, we had some that had been assigned to, like, the FBI task force, crimes against children, stuff like that, different teams, um, and we were pulling those resources as well. So, we had those detectives that belonged to MSP along with um, FBI came. We asked for their help. Uh, Sheriff's Department was there. Uh, of course, Armada Police Department was there. A lot of our agency was there, so it really was a, a group effort of of all levels of law enforcement um, that we were putting into this immediately um, and, I, and and some people had asked later why such a big um, you know force on people people die every day unfortunately, we see it on the news, and people are killed every day and I, I think the level was the fact that. You know, you you have a lot of homicides on TV, um, on the news that you hear about. And, uh, you know, a lot of them tend to re- revolve around some sort of criminal activity, whether it be a drug deal gone bad or something else gone bad. And this case was much uh, more shocking being in a small town of Armada that doesn't have murders. It right. being a 14-year-old girl, a beautiful summer evening on a walking path that families and kids and everybody use every single day. So it was really the type of crime it was, I think really pushed to our level of needing to get there right away because this was definitely something that stood out.
0: Right. It was a very violent attack.
1: Very violent attack and just not like, if I can say the word typical, but again, the typical homicide you see on TV that is drug related, uh, uh, gang related, you know anything along those lines that unfortunately we see so much, you you start to grow numb to.
0: right. Yeah, April was an atypical victim.
1: Correct. So during this investigation and and right away, because it's such a small town, Um, word was spreading of what had happened. Um, I was made aware there were Facebook posts, a lot of talk about it, and it was getting out. And as that gets out, we start to receive calls in the command center, tips, um, you know, possible witnesses, people who were on the path. They heard about the path, so people started calling, which was fantastic. You know, that's exactly what we're looking for, anybody that was on that path that day, anybody that was – in town that seen her walking her dog that day, you know, any information we can obtain, um, helps us to, you know, collect any evidence, but to build that timeline. And that's really what we're trying to do is really build a timeline so we can figure out what happened. So we start receiving some tips about, um, people who believe they have seen April on the path. They seen her with a male and a bike. At first, we weren't clear on if we were talking pedal bike, if we were talking moped, um, dirt bike, motorcycle. We really weren't clear. And so that information was out there about an individual talking to a girl with a dog that we believe was April, and he had a, a some sort of bike he was on. That branches out, and of course... Information. Any local that that are aware that Armada was aware of, we're sending detectives to track people down, question people. You know, we we're trying to investigate every part of this that we can. At the same time, we're talking about sending out uh, detectives to start knocking on doors in this, I guess what I would call subdivision in Armada, and knock on every single door. And make contact with somebody because she was walking her dog. And again, we want to work on that timeline. See if anybody's seen her. Did they see anybody with her? Any of that type of information that can help us?
0: Um, right. So you're trying to reconstruct
1: the, her movements
0: leading up reconst-
1: to her if, attack. If we can re exactly if we can reconstruct and and you know we're we're trying to find every minute from the time she left her house until this you know till this attack happened and if we can do that then we should be able to you know locate a suspect or at least put a suspect together that we need to you know build a suspect profile that we can look for then at that point right um so information eventually came in from a witness that it was more of a we believe more of a dirt bike motorcycle that this individual was seen. There was even information of, um, you know, a witness that said he saw real quick and and felt it almost looked like a a dad with a daughter having, you know, almost, um, maybe an argument like the, the two, when he looked at him real quickly, didn't look happy. So it kind of looked like that look to him is how he described it. Um, Later in the day, I was outside of Armada and returning to the command center. And as I'm driving, I see the grade of the land right there kind of drops down. So on the one side of the road, it's like immediate drop down in this this um, driveway goes, swoops way down to a garage or a, a residence that's there. And I notice a motorcycle Looked like a dirt bike motorcycle sitting there. And I started thinking, is that the kind of bike we're looking for?
0: Yeah. Um,
1: I turn around, I pull in the driveway, grab my phone, snap a few photos of it, snap the license plate and the address, and I head back to the command center to talk to some of the detectives who who are obtaining all the information, you know, and, and trying to start to put things together for us and ask them if this is what we're looking for. And they said, yeah, that's along the lines. We believe of what we're looking for run with that for right now, you know, and, and, you know, run it till you can clear it or run it until you can't clear it in a right. sense. So I begin to investigate that motorcycle. I eventually take a uh, uniform officer, uniform trooper that was assigned to us Um, and we, we go out to that residence. I want to make contact there now, find out whatever I can about this bike, who owns it, where they were, everything I can find out. And I go back, the bike is not in the driveway anymore. I do make contact with, um, one of the residents at the, at the house. And he tells me that the bike belongs to a friend of his who had just stopped by for a few minutes to say hi. That point he tells me that, the owner of the bike is James Van Callis. I obtained a little more information. Go ahead.
0: Is that the first time you've heard his name, or his name has come up to your knowledge?
1: First, first time okay. his name came up. Yes, wow. in this investigation. He tells me he lives outside of town. Kind of gives me a direction. You know, about about another twenty minutes outside of town. More in the as you get into the rural area, and um, so I take that information back to the command center. Now we have a little area set up. We have analysts there um, who can, you know, dig dig for information for us. And I give them some information and let them do a workup. I'm doing some workup in, in some of our databases, seeing anything I can find out about him. Meanwhile, this is just the first full day of this investigation, so there's a lot going on. There's more tips coming in. You know, we're sending detectives out, of course, to, to, you know, registered sex offenders in the area, um, tracking down any of these tips that people are telling us. You know, it could be this person trying to find anybody who owns a motorcycle in a so-many-mile radius, any motorcycles that are registered, and we're sending people to knock on their doors and look at those bikes. I mean, we are trying to be as thorough as you possibly can um, in this investigation and I mean ultimately my understanding was over a thousand tips came in. Now a lot of those came in after a witness gave us a description of who they saw on the path and, and there was a sketch put out. Um, we we received a lot of tips I mean and tips that went as far as to Fraser, Michigan oh. which is a decent amount of time south of Armada yeah. Um but they believe a a someone at the school looked like this um drawing so unfortunately we have you have to clear every tip because the last thing you want to do is blow a tip off and then you know because you, you're focused so much on one thing and that doesn't pan out and god forbid you you know didn't investigate the tip that actually could be something and something else bad happens, you know, or you lose evidence because you didn't move quicker on something. So, right, you know, you all to those to take aspects. half a day
0: and drive to Fraser.
1: <laughs> right. And this, this would, though, be why we had so many people involved. Right. Because it did start branching out. There was a, um, a tip came in from a girl who lives in Armada. And that day had noticed a white van in her neighborhood driving very slow, uh, a couple guys in it and it, she said that looked like they were looking at her pointing. Um so now this white van for a little while became a, a big concern and there was detectives assigned you need to figure out what white van this is, locate it, find out who these guys are, you know what you got to find out everything. So ultimately the white van was cleared. It was workers that were in the area for a legitimate job. They were not involved, but these are the type of things that come in that are definitely throw up a red flag and and you definitely want to investigate it um, it, until you have a good suspect. So going forward, I obtained what information I can on James Van Callis and later that evening, um, because this was a long day, we were still working and I asked another detective and the same uniform-off trooper to um, go with me out to James Van Callis's house and make contact with him. So we go out to James Van Callis's house that evening. It's about 11 o'clock at night. A knock on the door, an older gentleman answers. I asked for James Van Callis. He said, that's me. And I said, okay, is there a James Van Callis Jr. by chance cause I was under the impression I was definitely looking for somebody younger than this guy. And he said, yeah, that's my son. He calls James and James comes out on the front porch. Um, His dad came with him. And then at some point right in there, um, James Van Kels' girlfriend, Crystal, came out on the front porch as well. So James and his dad sit down in chairs and there was only two chairs, and Crystal kind of crouches down, squats down, I guess, in a in a you know squatting position next to James, and just kind of stays there as I talk to James. I um, explained to James that we were investigating, you know, a crime that that had happened in Armada, and they said they had heard about it. It's on Facebook, and I said, yeah, we're investigating, you know, this murder uh, that occurred and that I had some information that he possibly, that he owns a bike, and he might have been in town the day before, the day that it, the crime happened. I said, you know, and if you were in town, we're trying to locate anybody that was in town because you may have seen something that could help us that you might not even realize. I did not let him know that the reason I was there was because there was a male with a a motorbike on the trail seen with her.
0: Right. So you're just feeling him out at this point without showing your hand.
1: That's all I'm doing. I I am not letting him know that he could in any aspect at all at this point be a suspect or that he is suspect because he might've been in town and he has a bike. So I, tell him that information and, and I ask him questions. He does tell me he was in town on his bike the day of the murder. He said he was riding through Armada killing time while his, uh, he was waiting for his brother to get home so he could go over his brother's house who lives on on the west side of Armada. He says he had went to the gas station, which there's only one in town there, and that gave me a little bit of a time frame that he thinks he was there and that he got to his brothers. I was able to ask him about his helmet because one of the witnesses talked about the, the male they've seen on the trail holding a black helmet. I got him to bring his helmet out. I took a photo. He told me what clothing he was wearing. I asked him what kind of shoes he was wearing, took a stab at it and he didn't seem to have a problem with that. So he brought out a pair of shoes and showed me a pair of shoes. Right. I knew when I flipped them over that these were not the shoes of of the killer.
0: Right. Two two things I want to bring up here. One, yep.
1: you knew that the
0: type of shoes were like a Nike brand based on the prints. And also his motorcycle helmet was thought to be a murder weapon.
1: Correct. So we had um, obtained... Photos from the autopsy that, unfortunately, uh, very tragic, very uh, um, brutal, uh, had footwear impressions, the tread marks on April's face and her neck and upper chest area where she had been stomped on Uh um, to leave. These weren't dirt impressions. They were impressions, you know, in the skin. They were very... Very brutal uh, attack to be able to do that. So because of that, we had these footwear impressions that showed possibly what we thought at the time, um, you know, maybe a Nike shoe. They were just the way the tread pattern was, long squiggly lines that just ran along each other. So when when James brought out these K-Swiss shoes and showed me, um, the bottom of them did not look like what I had seen from the autopsy photos. Right. I asked him about his bike that night. Uh, he took me around the side of the house and I, I looked at the bike. It was dark, but I took a couple photos. At that point, I, I felt like I kind of probably asked enough questions. It was late and we, we left, we ended the interview. We went back, we all had our own vehicle because it was pretty late at that point and, and we were gonna be done for the day and come back next morning we went by our vehicles before we all left and had a quick conversation. You know, the shoes didn't match, but I I remember telling, you know, the detective sergeant that was there and and the, uh, the trooper that something's just a little off about the guy. I don't know if it was how easily he was answering the questions and how confident he seemed or something just, Just seemed a little off. So the next morning, back at the command center, um, and and throughout that day, the next days, we would have briefings every couple hours because there were so many people out working on so many different branches of this investigation that we wanted to make sure everybody was up to speed on what was going on. Right. So So there's a lot of moving
0: pieces. Yeah, a lot of
1: moving pieces. And you could be over here doing this and not have a clue what's going on over here. But, you know, that information could help you. So um, we would we would have these periodic briefings in the command center, bring everybody up to speed, share all the information. Um, We would also have smaller meetings like this. I would go with Becky MacArthur, who was the detective sergeant in charge of the case at the time and have a meeting with her. uh, Chief Howard. Um, our lieutenant over our detective bureau, there was a small group, and we'd have a meeting, and that's what I did. I relayed this information from the night before, a uh, meeting with James Van Callis. I explained to them about his bike, that it was partially blue and white, which now we were obtaining more information about this motorbike that was seen, that it was believed to be blue and white. He does have a black helmet. He admitted to being in Armada the night of the murder, the evening of the murder, you know, these are, this is the clothing he was wearing. So now we had a lot of information as well as him telling me he went to his brothers. I I did obtain his brother's info and what times he was there. We immediately start checking on these alibis um, like we would with anybody. And we send detectives out to track his brother down because now we want to verify did James show up at your house? What time did he get there? What time did he leave? You know, any of that information to verify. We go to the gas station. We obtain video of a motorcycle going by, you know, that, that helps us build our timeline during all this. Of course, everything else is still going on and we make a determination that I'm going to go back out to his house that morning. I go back out to his house that morning um, with a FBI agent, and I make contact with James again. I asked James that I basically explained to him that it was late the night before. I'm just working on, we got so many tips. I just need to finish his off so I can clear it, move on to the next thing. And I was hoping he'd come in and just give a written statement of everything he told me the night before. And he tells me that he's kind of busy. "Oh, and he's got some errands he needs to run." And for me and, and, and I, obviously, I'll be biased my thinking, because I am a police officer, and people aren't a lot, so they don't think the same way. But it struck me a little strange because there is a, you know, detective from the state police and an FBI agent standing there. Wanting to talk to you and, and you know just get some information. We're trying to clear up a homicide of a fourteen-year-old girl, and you got errands to run. And I'm thinking, man, I would probably be like, "Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Let's get this done. Anything I can do to help you guys? You know, this was a horrible event. Whatever. Let let me get this done. My errands can wait." Yeah, there's, a, there's
0: just a slew of red flags at this point.
1: They're building. The red flags are definitely building. So I asked James if when he's done with his errands, maybe he could give me a call. We could have him come in, do the written statement, because, you know, my bosses want me to clear these tips. And there's a lot that I got to work on. And I would love to be done with him. This is what I'm telling him. Be done with him. And uh, so, you know, I can move on to the next one. He says, yep, I can give you a call. Well, before I left, I started asking him more questions, and um, I work on the timeline more, try to get some more exact answers. I take some more photos of his bike because now it's daylight, and he does give me more information before we leave. So I take that information back, have another meeting. I'm not sure if we talked at that point on the phone, we had a. Um, there were some conference calls with FBI profiler to relay that information, see if they feel that fits this type of crime from a profile maybe they built. So we were really working on every aspect of it to share the information. And later in the afternoon, it was determined I was not getting a call from him, so I would call James up. Meanwhile, detectives did go locate his brother uh, at a construction site where he was working and they asked him to see his phone. He initially told them he didn't have it, that he had lost his phone. Uh huh. I'm not a hundred percent clear right now on if they talked to his boss, but somehow they figured out he was lying and he ended up providing his phone to them. They took his phone um, to do a, a phone dump. And, of course, another red flag. Why Why are you lying about your phone? Um, and it was found that in the brother's phone, there had been text messages from James that were deleted. Oh. We were not able to figure out what they said. We just were able to figure out that there were text messages that had been deleted. Another red flag. So they obtained a timeline from his brother that... His brother believes he got home when James arrived, who else was at the house. Now these are more people we would contact, Um, and what time James left. So we start, you know, we have a, a big whiteboard, and I have a timeline for James Van Callis, and we're putting everything up there. I called James in that afternoon because I hadn't heard from him, and he immediately is irate on the telephone yelling at me screaming at me that we are on a witch hunt we're out taking people's phones and I knew right away what he was talking about and I try to calm him down and remind him that James we're just I got we got to clear tips we have to do the right thing for April who was killed you know we have a 14 year old girl that was murdered and we're just trying to trying to solve this crime And we're not pointing the finger at anybody, but we have to be very thorough. And that kind of calmed him down. I don't know if he thought, oh, wow, you know, I'm flying off the handle. Let me slow down here or what. But it calmed him down a little bit on the phone. And he told me that I'll give you the written statement. Well, I told him at that point, I only asked him for a written statement of what he already told me. I wasn't asking for anything more. I just want his words. So I'm I'm not putting my own words in a report. He tells me that at that point, he says, I'll give you a written statement, but it's got to go through my attorney.
0: Mm-hmm. I
1: said, okay. I said, James, absolutely. I go, that's your right. And if that makes you feel more comfortable, I don't have a problem with that. It doesn't change it. I'm Like I said, I'm just looking to get your written statement. Um, I said, if you want to give me your attorney's name, I, I'll give him a call right now, you know, and, and we can get that set up. He said, I don't feel comfortable giving you my attorney's name right now. I think it was because he doesn't have an attorney at that point is what he determined. I said, okay, well, when you feel comfortable, why don't you give me a call and give me that attorney's name? And that was pretty much the last time there was any actual interview with James. Now, Um,
0: how many how long was this after the murder occurred that you had this conversation about the attorney? This
1: was the second day.
0: Okay, so so the
1: murder happened in the evening. We made contact with him the next evening was the first time we had contact with him. Twenty four hours later. Right. And then the very next morning. So a day and a half later. We were at his house again, and then this was that afternoon, so basically forty eight hours later
0: Wow, that's uh, impressive. was that
1: conversation yeah,
0: yeah. no he was living with his dad and his girlfriend,
1: so it was kind of a strange setup. He was living it's a it's a rather large house, and he lived with his girlfriend Crystal, two children, one being both of theirs together, and then one being hers with somebody else. His dad lived there and had his own room, but his mom and her new husband also lived in the house.
0: That is a strange setup.
1: It was a strange setup.
0: <laughs> and Definitely I've heard the,
1: a strange setup.
0: I've heard the house was not in great condition.
1: The house was not in great condition. Uh, they didn't have power running all the time. Uh, my understanding of the setup was a generator that they would run to run power and run different things in the house. So they'd go out and start up a generator. The basement was pretty bad. The basement looked like it had flooded at one point, and there was a lot of stuff down there, some being cardboard boxes and different things, and none of it, it it looked like after the flood or, you know, whatever, there was water, definitely. Um, Nothing was cleaned out of the basement. You know, there was, it, it was just, uh, housekeeping was not a priority in that understood. house. Yeah, understood. So, yeah.
0: And at what point was was James t- arrested for and charged with April's, or arrested for April's murder? How many, you know, when did that happen?
1: So, with all this information that came in really rather quickly on James, you know, he, he, every minute it seemed like he began to look better and better as a suspect to the point where we were doing more interviews of, of people verifying things all based around him. Again, there was still all the other investigations going on that had to be cleared, but we were definitely starting to focus on him. And there was at one point we determined that we had enough information that we wanted to get a search warrant for James's house. Of course, doing that is we're looking for evidence, right? Anything of his that maybe we could find that would have April's DNA on it. Anything that he may have that was um, April's property. We had never located April's backpack that she was carrying. She would go for a walk and take the dog and she would keep water and a little bowl for the dog and things like that in the backpack And she had that with her that day. We never located that backpack to that point. um, The dog's leash was missing, which was strange. That is strange. So, you know, we didn't know what we might find, but we were hoping to find something. So a search warrant was obtained, and I believe it was that Wednesday following uh, the homicide. So within a week, um, we did a search warrant. Well, actually, it was only within a few more days, I think, of this contact. But we uh, executed a search warrant at his residence. He was pretty irate. There's there's one thing I'll point out because I think it kind of goes to his mentality a little bit. Um, you know, we, we have our... our call them SWAT team members, our ES team members, and that's who execute the search warrant sometimes when we don't know what we're going to encounter. We want to be safe. So they they enter the house first, secure everybody, clear the location, make sure it's safe before anybody else comes in, and they do this. Well, I come in immediately after, and James is irate. He's in handcuffs. His mom's in handcuffs. Anybody in a location when we do a search warrant is going to be detained until we know that it's secure and safe you know, and then then we'll go from there. And James is screaming um, that we handcuffed him, handcuffed his mom. He's going to sue us. He's going to own our badges like a lot of a lot of things like that. He, he's pretty irate. Well, I had already met James a couple times in person, talked to him on the phone. So I go over. I take custody of James and I walk him into a different room that faces goes out windows to the front of the house. Mind you, we have a lot of people there because it's a big location. We are bringing lab personnel, FBI, us, Sheriff's Department to search. Everybody's going to be assigned locations. You're going to search, you know, collect evidence, you know, everything you would do at a search warrant. And I'm trying to calm him down. And while I'm talking to him, trying to calm him down, he stops, loses focus on everything that's going on looking, staring out the front window, and he says, wow, you guys bring some good-looking people with you. <laughs> and I look out the front window, and it's a younger blonde. Um, I think she was an intern with the FBI or an analyst, and she's walking by the front window, and he loses all focus on all his anger, everything else that's going on. Saying handcuffs, guns all over his mom. And that was his focus for that moment. Wow. And I and I thought that was kind of a creepy moment.
0: <laughs> yeah. Very <laughs> you know, creepy. That,
1: that he notices that, and uh, you know, enough to enough to forget at any point in time that you know the FBI, the state police have just raided your house, and you're in handcuffs the search warrants being conducted and during it uh, myself and, and a detective Sergeant Donahue at the time are pretty much tasked with lack of better term babysitting James and his father during the search of the house. So we're out front with him for a long period of time, which gave me more time to really experience James fluctuation of his emotions. I will say he can ramp up very fast and it was seen that I believe his dad gets him going. Um, it was very obvious his dad was not fond of law enforcement, complaining dad, about us. Go dad ahead. had
0: a criminal record too, didn't he?
1: He did. I don't remember specifically what the charge was, so I won't say. But Dad did have a criminal record, yes. And Dad seemed to, you know, it was it was that whole stigma of they you could, they did not. Like law enforcement, they didn't respect it. They didn't appreciate it. Nothing. And that was very clear. But dad would would poke at James to get him going. And I remember one point we're outside and a helicopter's overhead, possibly media. And his dad is just poking him. Look at that, James. Look at that. They're putting us on the news. You know, they're sitting there with their cameras. They're filming us right now and and poking at him to get James ramped up to where he looks up. He holds both hands up puts up his middle fingers, and starts screaming at the helicopter.
0: Wow. You
1: know, and I'm like, oh, James, got to settle down. There was many times he would ramp up. I'd get him to settle down. You know, it was a lot of you guys, the police, and I would remind him that you're doing that whole generalization. You know, we're told as police officers not to do that. You shouldn't do that as well. I said, James, you never had contact with me before this whole incident. You know, what you what you guys dealt with police in the past have nothing to do with me. And he would. He would calm back down. Something would get him ramped back up.
0: He sounds immature for someone in his 30s.
1: Immature, but also uh, you could tell he it, it, almost like an ego issue. Like when you did talk with him, he came across like he felt like he was smarter than you. You know, like he could pull one over. Yeah. But he wasn't. The, during, the, during the search warrant, though, um, on a side of the house, uh, we located a, um, an area with a dog pen, chain-link fence, that actually had marijuana growing in it. James tried to say that he was a caregiver, and that's why he's growing the marijuana. We did all our checks. He was not a caregiver, and ultimately, um, we determined it was him and his dad growing it. They were both arrested at that search warrant for the marijuana. So, James was lodged. His dad was eventually released. um it was it was determined that it was James marijuana. He was growing it, and he was held on the marijuana. Um, he chose not to bond out. There was a bond placed, you know, after after he went in front of the judge, but they did not they did not bond him out. And uh, we continued our investigation. Ultimately, we had the video. For our timeline, we had the video that gave us a time by the gas station. During our canvas of the neighborhood, we made contact at a residence where it was a firefighter, I believe, and he had a security camera on his house. And it was a corner house, and it picked up James going by on his motorcycle at a certain time, turning the corner. So now we're really able to build this timeline. The thing was, we still didn't know... Where where did he go after? Like, how did he get off the trail? We didn't have any of that information. So, you know, we start to focus in more on that. The other tips go way down. A lot of them are being cleared. And the, the investigation really starts to lean mainly towards James Van Callis at this point. We continue till you know the prosecutor we're working hand in hand with them and until they feel they wanted to to charge james now we did do a second search warrant at the residence because back to the shoes we weren't clear what shoes they were during all this we've we had several interviews with crystal his girlfriend and each time we interviewed Crystal, we seemed to get a little more information from her. And I think we determined that she wasn't trying to lie to us, not that she wanted to lie or hold back. We determined that she was scared.
0: It sounds she like scared. she was in an abusive relationship with him.
1: It, sounded, it, it came out that it seemed to be a very controlling relationship to the point where... I remember some conversations that, you know, if she wanted to use a phone, like even to call her mom or use an iPad to go on on Facebook. That seemed to be a big thing going on Facebook then that she had to get permission to use the phone or use that iPad to go online. Um, And it kind of made me think back to that first contact I had with him that evening where he's sitting in a chair on the front porch. There's no other chair available. And she's squatting down next to him at his side. Right. Almost in a sense, you know, almost like cowering, <laughs> yeah,
0: you know, um,
1: and and definitely not him offering his chair up to her. You know, hey, sit here. You don't have to, you know, squat down there. That never happened. So. So as we talked to to Crystal, one of the interviews, she told us that he lied to us that night I came there about the shoes he was wearing and that he was wearing a different pair of shoes and that they were expensive shoes that he bought. She didn't know the name of them. She wasn't familiar, but they were definitely not those shoes that he showed us. She also told us during one of the interviews that she woke up one of those nights right after that this homicide happened and he wasn't in bed and she went into another room and he was in that room cleaning what appeared to be cleaning his helmet and his shoes with hand sanitizer.
0: Yeah. Another red flag.
1: Absolutely. A red flag middle of the night. Um, So a photo was eventually located on online, um, maybe off of Facebook. And it was a full body photo of James standing next to a car, just outside photo. James had, some Air Jordan tennis shoes on in the photo. And we were like, ah, Mm -hmm. an aha moment. We showed the photo to Crystal, and she identified those as the shoes James would have been wearing the night of the homicide. Also the shoes he was cleaning in the middle of the night. But unfortunately, these were also shoes that were never found at our search warrant. We figured out what shoes they were, and they were, I believe they were Air Jordans. I think they were called Flight the Power. Um, and those were ultimately, for the investigation, ordered online in the size shoe James wears.
0: Wow. And but we
1: ordered a pair.
0: Did you ever find the actual shoes?
1: We never found the actual oh. shoes. Um, once, Once we knew about those shoes... And we thought about other evidence, uh, possibly when she told us things were being cleaned, we executed a second search warrant at his residence, and we had a massive amount of people there, volunteers um, through EMS and different things. And there was a large, it's a large farm area where he lives. They had a decent amount of property behind them, but then it was all farmland. Our thought was, Possibly those shoes maybe were buried out there somewhere, yeah, so we had a huge line of people side by side and canvassed the entire area, going through brush and just trying to make a straight line and see if you see anything, anything turned up, anything that looks like freshly you know buried moved dirt and we we it was it was a very long, hot day and we never turned up anything. So ultimately, those shoes were never located. There was also no DNA ever located in this case. We never found any of April's DNA uh, on anything of James Van Callis. We never found any of April's property at the James Van Callis residence. And James Van Callis' DNA was not found on April at all. So there was no DNA to tie anything in this case.
0: The the case, from what I've read, sounds like it really hinged on the cell phone and her Fitbit.
1: Her uh, cell phone was eventually... Um, it was looked at a few times, we had it. But it, it took a while to where it was eventually found that there was this fitness app running in the background on her phone. And that it was on the day she, she walked the dog, the day of her murder. And the app actually has a map it would pull up like you like probably many many do right now and it shows a line and the exact path April walked and it shows her going through where she walked with the dog and where she got on the path and it shows a point where it stops and it gets to a point that really really was a sad point in watching this uh, app as it played out because the line goes a little bit off the path, and then it just starts to zigzag like crazy in one spot, back and forth. Oh. Um, which, of course, we believe was, was at the point she was being attacked. Um, wow. Yeah. So the, the line then comes out, gets back on the path. And now it's going off along the path at a high rate of speed because it would give you a speed on this app, um, which was, you know, ultimately a great thing that was found. It it really did help um, because the line goes out towards the end of the path. It makes one little quick jog, then it's back on the path, and then it gives us the whole route that James Van Callis took through town out of town to where ultimately he threw that phone in some brush at the head of somebody's driveway down a dirt road. That phone was located immediately. They tracked that phone immediately when they realized they didn't have it the the morning after the homicide and they were able to get an area and then the phone died. So they went to that area um, and it might have been a and and I apologize if I'm wrong, but I believe it was a, a canine uh, from the sheriff's department, and he had a dog that does article searches, and they started searching that area, and that dog located that phone Good in the brush, right inside of you know somebody the beginning of the a long driveway where you know James had dumped that phone. Wow! So now we had the path, you know the exit out of town. Where he came back through town because he did then go to his brothers. We were able to put all that together with the times on the videos, and really build that whole timeline now.
0: So there was a lot of technology used to solve this between the the video um, footage of him and the cell phone data yeah. and the Fitbit data. I mean, that's really what built the
1: case. It was it was a it was a I would say it was really. I would say this case was definitely a combined of feet on the ground because a lot of information we got was interviewing him. You know, he he gives us information. His brother gives us information that we're able to really use. But again, yes, the technology, the the videos of getting certain times and having his, his path of travel, um, the fitness app that shows us exactly where April was at. Um, there was a, there was a lot of that, uh, witnesses technology. I believe one witness was able to tell us what time he was on the path because he's a big biker and he tracks himself as he's biking along the path. So we were able to get information from, you know, that to even help our timeline out. We had several witnesses, but, you know, normally people can't give you an exact minute, um, this, this witness was able to give us some pretty exact timing of, of you know, him biking and everything. So, um, you know, and of course the witnesses that spotted him on the path and was able to give a sketch uh, drawing of, you know, what she believed he looked like. That was extremely helpful.
0: Well, and I know that you're, you're modest, but you spotted his motorcycle at that guy's house. And if you hadn't Correct. spotted that, it wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't know who James Callis was because he hid the bike at that point.
1: Yeah, he was well outside of town. And, you know, there were, there's been, I don't claim to be the big case breaker in it, but, um, you know, spotting the bike does has come up that would we have ever even found James Van Callis? Would he have came up later in the in investigation? Possibly. Absolutely. We don't know. um, But to come up that quickly, it was just, you know, I was in the right place at the right time. And and I think things happen for a reason sometimes. Again, the different agencies that all came together all really played a big part in it. I, I think that teamwork, you know, and able to work together and really is is also what really helped this case.
2: Thanks to Sergeant Peckman for sharing his unique insight on the case. This week's episode was written by Susie St. John based on court transcripts from the Van Callis trial, as well as articles from the Times Herald and the Lansing State Journal. I'm Nina Instead, the producer and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe.